Hi everyone and welcome to On My Mind. In this episode I'm joined by Derek Scott, an experienced internal family systems therapist based in Canada, working with people across the world to help them make sense of those voices in our heads and bring about some inner peace. We've all got those voices, often competing with one another or giving each other a hard time. Familiar to most of us perhaps is the inner critical voice. The biggest revelation for me after listening to the podcast was that the voices in your head are all rooting for you in some way and getting to know them from a place of compassion and curiosity is key to bringing about some inner peace. Actually when we did the podcast my own inner critic surfaced and as we spoke Derek kindly helped me out using his model so you'll get to see it live in action. He also shares some of his own resources that are available to people that don't have access to an internal family systems therapist so you can have a look at those too. As usual, there are some emotional themes to take care when listening, but otherwise sit back, relax and enjoy the podcast. Derek's got a cracking sense of humour, so there's some lightness in there too. Um, And let me know what you think. Post your comments afterwards. We'd really love to hear from you. The only thing I could liken it to is like being hit by a truck. It's like a moment in my mind that's that's been erased now because it was quite a traumatic experience. One human is amazingly complex. You add a second human and try to have a relationship and how complicated things get. Suddenly I feel like all of my history was a lie. There's nothing wrong with you, right? You're not bad or wrong or broken or, you know, stuck. And it's all healable. People's stories have the power to transform the way we see the world and the way we experience our lives. I'm your host, Adam, and I'll be guiding you on this journey. So sit back, relax, and find out this week what is on my mind. Thank you for joining us, Derek. It's really nice to to, uh, welcome you onto the On My Mind podcast. It'd be really great for, for the people listening if you could just give a little intro into who you are what you do you're not in the uk for the uk listeners so that's a bit of a twist uh, so tell us where you are in the world and um and what what it is that you do well i am from the uk i'm a british army brat so um i was born in germany then we moved to singapore and i did go to england when i was seven so then i graduated from keel university and then decided to emigrate so i'm in canada and i first came here, it was in the midst of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, so um, I started volunteering in that area, and I'd had some counselling training when I was at university, we had a peer counselling service, it was 24 hours, Um, so I started volunteering in AIDS work, then I started training at the Gestalt Institute in Toronto, uh, which is a particular form of psychotherapy, and then um, quickly moved into a staff position in AIDS work and then worked in AIDS work for about 18 years, uh, specializing in grief and multiple loss, and then got very burnt out doing that and moved into private practice and then came across this uh, therapy modality called the internal family systems uh, model. One of my clients came in with a book and said, have you heard of this guy? And I hadn't. The guy's name is Dick Schwartz. And then I discovered there was um, a one-week retreat that February in Mexico. And one of the things about Canada in February is it's nice to get away, at least the part of Canada I'm in. So I went down to this retreat for a week, uh, met Dick, learned this model to a degree and recognized it as a serious game changer in terms of um, my own personal work 
and what I can bring to clients. Wow. So, so just backtracking a little bit, working in the 80s in the AIDS crisis, that must have been really, really difficult. It was, particularly in downtown Toronto, because there was um, a, a very large gay community. And the estimate at the time was that between 25% and 50% were infected. And we didn't have the understanding of long-term manageable chronic infection at all. And what, what we didn't know we were seeing were people who were close to end stage. So it looked at the time like you had two years after diagnosis before you died. Um, wow. it, was, it was catastrophic. Yeah. And what was the work that you were doing there? Was that helping people come to terms with the diagnosis mainly and, the, and supporting uh, their families? Or uh, It was pretty much one-on-one um, -on -one counseling, uh, anything from those who were recently infected to those who were recently bereaved, um, setting up care teams for people that wanted to die at home. There was a context of AIDS phobia and homophobia and uncertainty around transmissions. So um, treatment in hospitals was very poor at the time. And uh, I was also involved in housing, trying to get people housing because uh, people would just get sick and lose their jobs and then lose their apartments. and. Um, I was also working uh, for the Ministry of Health AIDS hotline. They set up an AIDS hotline. So you get any number of calls coming in from, uh, again, from the recently diagnosed to, I remember a woman calling to say, oh, she didn't know what HIV was, but they'd just come back from Germany and her husband had tested positive for it. And so had she, and she didn't know what that meant. And then having to break that information to her. So it was hard work. I was living in and working in the community and it was, Pretty overwhelming. I was in my twenties and I'd go to the bar at night to see a drag show to just take the pressure off. And the drag queen had died, and it ended up being a fundraiser for the drag queen. And it was hard. It was hard work. Yeah, it would have been a really hard time. And like you said, how far we've come now. I think you, you, you know that I did a podcast a few months back with one of my good friends who's HIV positive and does a lot of activist work around that to try and end the stigma. And it's just. Yeah to think I mean even when he was diagnosed which was sort of I think 16 17 years ago he was told you know you've probably got about 30 years um, and, and now the studies are showing that actually people who are HIV positive might even be living longer because they're much more healthy they get regular checkups from the doctor and mm -hmm. tests and things like that so it's just it's for you to have, have seen that how do you feel about sort of seeing the difference because you would have treated people that obviously didn't have access to the treatments that we have now well, I can remember the switch when people uh, did suddenly have access to treatments. And it was very, very, that was a very curious time to be working because uh, a lot of the people I was working with had resigned themselves to their death. Um, some had got into huge debt on their credit cards because they could. They didn't have to worry about paying it off. Some couples um, were willing to stay together whilst one was, um, especially zero, a discordant couples so somebody's HIV positive somebody else is HIV negative and the HIV negative person would be willing to stay with the HIV positive through death but when death didn't occur um, everything was up for grabs again so couples splitting up that were formally committed and people needing to reevaluate they're prepared for death and suddenly uh, they needed to prepare for life that was a really interesting time to be a therapist because that wasn't good news for everybody people that had resigned themselves to dying and had made peace with that suddenly had to take up all the clamor of life again and uh, it was a very uh, challenging time then to be working and then 
because a new generation of people realizing that it's a manageable chronic infection and that language and that reality coming into being again. So, uh, I mean, obviously it's amazing that that shift happened and thank God, but uh, at the time it was challenging in different ways. Yeah, I've got a few friends in my own community who have similar experiences of, of friends who, you know, they feel like they're living on borrowed time because uh-huh. when it, when they were younger, loads of their friends were dying from, from AIDS and actually they, they were thinking that well, the same's inevitably going to happen to me. Uh, and one of my good friends now, he's like, I just feel like I'm living on borrowed time the whole time, so I just make the most of it. I don't <laughs> don't care too much. He's kind of got yeah. a really carefree attitude in a, in a positive way to living. Yeah. Yeah. So you really, you really know trauma well. It would be fair to say you're really familiar with that sort of emotional traumatic space for people. Uh, I'm cautious around how we use the word trauma. So I'm, I'm familiar with those kind of catastrophic life events and responses to catastrophic life events. Uh, but then there's uh, capital T trauma, the uh, trauma that results in PTSD or the um, early childhood stuff that. Uh, just requires a different understanding. So I just want to be clear, if we're talking about trauma, that there are life events which we can experience as traumatic, uh, but then there's trauma which needs to be integrated in a different way. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah, fully makes sense. So so you mentioned about what kind of got you into internal family systems work. Part of the uh, doing these podcasts is to help people understand that there are different types of therapies that are available. There's lots of myths around um psychotherapy you know we've all seen the tv shows where there's somebody sat in a chair with a with a notepad and making notes and just nodding and saying "Mm -hmm," um, and asking people about their childhood um internal family systems is a form of psychotherapy but perhaps you could explain a little bit about about what it is how it came about and how it works sure uh (laughs) so i'll speak for there's a part of me because there's a whole bunch of parts that we all have, but there's a part of me that just wants to make a, a comment on what you're saying. You know, I have worked with people who have had horrible experiences in therapy, um, with therapists that think they know what's best for the client, therapists that are on an ego trip, therapists that um, think that somehow they've got a God-given right to um, tell somebody what to do. I worked with a woman who um, had very low self-esteem, and she went to see a psychiatrist, and he fell asleep during her session. So she needed to nudge him and then she apologized for being boring. Wow. And he accepted her apology. Wow. And he fell asleep again during her session. And again, she apologized for being so boring and he accepted her apology. So that's abuse. That's just completely inappropriate. And it comes from a a paradigm and a model where the therapist is set up as the expert and the therapist has all the answers, and that's the stuff we see on TV, and that's the stuff that many therapists still believe. Uh, you get middle-class white heterosexual therapists that think everybody should be like a middle-class white heterosexual therapist, and then if they're not, then there's something wrong with them. So one thing about this model that I love is it's completely non-pathologizing. There is nothing that any of us do that is not from a part of us that has a good intent, a positive intent, even if it looks extreme. So you're a heroin user. If you look at uh, a heroin user and you ask the part of him or her that's using heroin, how come they're doing that and what if they didn't? Uh, That part of them could tell you. And it would probably have a concern that if we didn't use heroin, uh, a part of us that feels suicidal 
would get triggered or a part of us that feels like it doesn't deserve to live would get triggered or a part of us that has no social skills whatsoever and gets anxious would get triggered so the heroin keeps all of that at bay but we're not used to seeing her we're not used to seeing heroin use as a positive thing or alcohol use or drug use or gambling but these are the parts of us that if we get curious about them have a story to tell about why they believe they need to do this and this is one of the basic sort of key tenets of internal family systems therapy as i understand it is that it comes from the premise that there isn't just one self there are many parts to the self and they all have a different kind of identity is that right is it might not be that language but maybe you could expand on that yeah i'm happy to expand on that so the 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 basis of the model is that the personality is a system and we're all multiple we all have multiple parts to us and you know that intuitively adam if i said to you um if we were friends and i said hey do you want to go out for dinner friday night you might say to me well part of me does but part of me doesn't right? we use that language all the time uh, and so parts work and the understanding of the personality as being multiple is not new. What this model does is it understands that there's a whole bunch of parts um, and that we have what in this model is called self and self is different from the parts. Self has certain qualities. Uh, in IFS, we call them the eight C's. They are compassion, creativity, curiosity, courage, calmness connectedness and a couple of others I can't remember that you could look them up on my website <laughs> um, those qualities we all have and your essential self is no different from mine right? it's a universal self that we have um, and then we have these various parts of us now the, the parts of us you might have a part that likes to go shopping you might have a part that likes to go swimming you might have a part that likes cooking they're great in terms of the therapeutic work, there are some parts of us that hold distress. We call those exiles because they're exiled into a corner of the psyche. And then we've got parts that form the protective system. So parts of the protective system that don't want those parts to get triggered, we call managers, and they manage our life in such a way to make us look good and try to ensure that parts holding distress, such as shame or fear uh, or anxiety, don't get triggered. And if those parts do get triggered, that might flood the system with shame or anxiety or deep, deep sorrow, fear. Uh, if they get triggered, then we have other parts that distract from them really quickly. They change the state of the system. Those are called firefighters because they're responding to the emotional fire that's coming up. Uh, and they are the parts that will use um, strategies that may not be considered to be acceptable, such as drugs, alcohol, gambling, internet porn, um, sleep, manically uh, working out at the gym, gaming, those kind of uh, behaviors. So what we've got within the protective system is the proactive protective system, the managers that want us, want us to look good, work very hard to ensure that the exiles don't get triggered, and the reactive protective system that when the exiles do get triggered, um, distract in these very powerful ways. And as you can probably imagine, the manager parts don't necessarily like the firefighter parts. So there's tension within the system between these two uh, protective systems. Uh, and yet, both believe that they're operating with our best intent. And if you get curious about their strategies, they'll let you know uh, how, they, how important it is for them to do what they're doing. Does that make sense, Adam? Yeah, it was really clear. And, 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 it, and it helped me understand that all parts are trying to help you. 
um, because often the language that you hear in the therapy space is quite critical of those parts. They might say, oh, I'm really, you know, I've got this voice in my head that's just telling me that I'm worthless, that I'm not enough. And, I, and I'm really angry about that voice. I just wish it would go away. And you see a lot of conflict. And as I understand yeah. it in internal family systems is you're, you're trying to do something different with those voices rather than shut them away. Yeah, absolutely. So let me um, speak to that. And, and let me contrast IFS with, for example, CBT, which is the dominant form of therapy here in North America because it's evidence-based, as is IFS. But here's the difference. To take your example, you've got that critical voice telling you you're worthless, you're a loser, blah, 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 right? And so your response to that is you hate that voice, right? So you go to the therapist and you say, you know, I, I, I can't, can't go about my day. I've got this voice in my head that just tells me I'm a piece of shit all the time, blah, 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 blah. And the therapist, if it's a CBT therapist who don't understand multiplicity and work from what we call the monolithic model of the personality, the presentation might look like this from the client, you know, oh, you know, it tells me I'm a loser because I ran away from home when I was 15 and I lived on the streets and then I got a job in a coffee shop and I'm still working in this chain coffee shop and I'm, I'm just a loser, basically. And the CBT therapist would say, well, hang on, how come you ran away from home when you were 15? Well, my dad was beating me up. Well, maybe you could see yourself as a survivor, right? Maybe that's the, a better way to look at it. And the client will say, I never thought of it that way. I am a survivor. Thank you. And the CBT therapist will say, oh, you're welcome. And they'll shake hands and both will leave feeling really good until the next time the part that feels like a loser gets triggered. And now that part cannot even present in the therapy office because it will be reframed as a survivor. It's not a survivor. It feels like a loser. So what an IFS therapist would do instead is say, oh, you got this part telling you you're a loser, blah, blah, blah. What happens when you hear that? I hate that part of me. Okay, that's fine. The part of you that hates it, because we're always working from self in internal family systems. So the part of you that hates it, hates not one of those C's, ask that part of you if it could step aside. Ask it if it would be okay for us to get curious about that critical voice. Would that be okay? If you get a yes, you then uh, say, how do you feel towards that critical voice now? And you keep asking that question until something like curiosity emerges, which it always does. And if it's not curiosity or compassion, then you ask the part, maybe indifferent, maybe blanking, to pull back until you get to the curiosity. And then the client will say something like, I don't know why it's doing that. I don't know why it keeps telling me I'm a loser. Well then, because you've got some self-energy, some curiosity, you could say, well, why don't you ask it? What happens if you ask it? And if you ask that critical voice, Adam, and we all have those critical voices, they're part of the manager's strategies. But if you ask that critical voice part, how come you keep telling me I'm a loser? It will tell you why it believes it needs to do that and when and where it started doing that, if you just stay curious. And usually the critical voice will say, well, if I don't, keep telling you you're a loser, or if I don't keep on your case, or if I don't keep beating you up, you're going to be vulnerable. Right? What if you uh, decide that you're okay, and you start presenting in the world in a way that feels like you're okay, and then somebody's going to tell you you're arrogant, or somebody's going to tell you that your um, pride comes before a fall. Right? And if they tell you you're arrogant, that's going to land on a part that worries about being arrogant, or feels like it's too big for its britches, or whatever it was told. That would again be the exile. So these critical voice managers, they want to keep us in check. 
and they're often frozen in time. They often started doing that within the family of origin. Often it's an eight-year-old part or something like that. The, you know, mom and dad would tell it it was a loser. It's like, okay, that's what I need to tell myself, I'm a loser. So when we track what we call a trailhead, which is a part that holds a particular belief about itself or feelings about itself, which are difficult or challenging or burdensome, and then we track that, we'll often find an exile that has a story to tell. Um, but we can start with the manager part, start with the critical voice, just get curious about it. And that's what makes IFS fundamentally different. So here's an example. Somebody will come into the session and say, oh, hi, my drinking's out of hand, right? I'm drinking in the mornings these days. I'm drinking uh, a, quarter, a quarter of vodka a night. Uh, it's been getting out of hand. We need to do something about the drinking. I would say to the client, okay, it sounds like there's a part of you that really doesn't like the drinking part. That's fair. Right? Would it be okay for that part of you to pull back so we can get to know the drinking part? Because we want to find out why it's doing what it's doing. And when that becomes available, because one of the credos of internal family system is all parts are welcome and they genuinely are. When that's available and, we, and you can get the client to get curious about the drinking part, it will have a story to tell you about why it needs to drink. What if it didn't drink every night? Maybe there'd be a, maybe there's a part that's profoundly lonely, isolated and lonely. And maybe it tracks back to being four years old in the family of origin. Maybe it's an only child, no siblings. Maybe mom and dad had no time for it. It's profoundly lonely. So rather than have that flood the system, the drinking part says, well, we'll just have a few drinks every night or we'll have a quarter of vodka and we'll distract from it. Which is, as a strategy, makes absolute sense. Once we've got that clarity, we can then ask that drinking part, would it be okay to get to know the lonely part so that we can help it out? So, so it's coming back to that curiosity and that compassionate sort of perspective. And when you were saying that, I suppose some of the work, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the work that I've done around mindfulness, is that how that would work in a session? You would get people to sort of take a step back and observe their parts? How do you, how do you get somebody into that place of the, the self? Yeah, it's a really good question. So um, IFS is different from mindfulness. In mindfulness, you're usually working from an observer part. So my observer part can watch the other parts kind of rise and fall, right? whether you call them thoughts or feelings or whatever, the parts that hold thoughts, parts that hold feelings. Mindfulness is about not attaching. So that comes from an, an observer part, which can be really nice. I can observe my parts. I feel very peaceful. I'm not engaging with them. I, I'm not um, taking them too seriously. However, that's not the therapeutic work. Self is about one of those C's is connection. It's actually about connecting. So uh, as opposed to mindfulness, we want to connect with a part. So the way I would do that, um, Adam, if you were, can you give me an example of what you might present with and then I could show you? I can use me as an example. When All we right. were talking earlier and you said, um, can, I, can I offer you some clarity on trauma? A little mm -hmm. part of me went, oh, Adam, you got trauma wrong and you're meant to be a qualified psychotherapist and you got that wrong. And, and right. now the people listening are going to think that you're stupid. So let's, okay. let's play out with that. All right, so thank you very much for speaking for that part of you. So as you name that part to me, do you have a sense of where it lives in or around your body? Do you have a sense of where it's kind of located? Yeah, it's definitely in my chest and it's, and it's very there. Okay, good. So it's very there. So as it's letting you know about itself, how do you feel towards this part of you? Um, 
I would say like I want it to go away. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. That makes sense, right? Yeah. I don't want it to be there. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. I get that. So the part of you that doesn't want it to be there, could you acknowledge that part? Yeah. You do that? Good. Now ask that part if it'd be willing to pull its energy back a little so that we can get to know this one that feels badly. It's kind of suggesting that if it does that, something bad might happen. Right, that's really good to know. We don't want anything bad to happen. So ask it, what does it imagine might happen that would not be good? Um, it's saying that if it steps back, it, I might be publicly embarrassed. Okay, and it doesn't want that to happen? No. Right, okay. How does it imagine that happening? Hmm. It doesn't have an answer to that. Okay. So how about this? Would it be willing to kind of step to the side a little bit so you can get to know this one that feels badly? And if it looks like you're in danger of being publicly um, embarrassed, it can step right back in and block that connection again. Would it be willing to do that? Sure, yeah, it feels safe. It feels right. because okay. it's you and it knows you're experienced. It feels it feels great. good to go with that. So can you thank it for that? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, great. And now just ask it to pull its energy back just a little. Right? As it does that, Adam, bring your attention back to this part that felt badly about, oh, I didn't get the trauma thing right. How do you feel towards it now? Um, there's an inquisitiveness about why it's so powerful. Oh, so it, it sounds, it feels really powerful to you? Yeah, it feels like, why is it so surging? Okay, yeah. is the amount of energy it's bringing forward, does it feel like it's okay, or does it feel like it's too much, this surging, powerful energy? It's just about okay. I think it's now it's okay. now now that other part step back. Yeah. It feels like, okay, let's, let's get to know this part. Okay, good. So, um, See if you can invite this part to know that you're there, that you're aware of it in whatever way that makes sense to you. Sure, yeah. Okay. Now, as you're doing that, make sure it knows who you are and how old you are. Okay. Just give it that information. And then how does it respond to you connecting with it in this way? The, the initial thing that came up was, what, you're 35? <laughs> right, yeah. So that often happens. So just take a moment for it to get used to that idea. And if it's surprised that the system is now 35, it probably tracks back to being quite a bit younger than 35. So see if you can ask it from that place of curiosity, either how long it's been around or how old it is when it first comes up in your system. It's, it's, it's young school, primary school, so like between five and nine. Okay, right. That's so just, Go yeah. on, sorry. It came with an image. It came with a particular event yeah, that was good. quite shaming. Um, yeah. But right. it's still, it's still, <clears throat> it's still saying, I can't believe you're 35. <laughs> right. All right. So let's just sit with it for a minute while it gets used to that idea. Sure. Right? Yeah. It's a shock. Yeah. yeah. I'll talk while you just, while you're just with that sure. part of you. Because here's an interesting thing about when you get into the system. Many of these parts are literally frozen in time. This one's frozen in this event, right? And because they get essentially frozen in time, they don't necessarily know that the system has aged, that there's now an adult running the ship. And the protectors can be the same, right? That, that protector that softened back, that was worried about you being publicly embarrassed, may also be younger, might be around you know, the same age as this one. 
And so when you go into the internal world and you say, hi, I'm 35, or I say, hi, I'm 57, um, <laughs> you sometimes get this response. It's like, what the fuck is what mine says? You, you know, I hope the language is okay for your podcast. And it's as if, imagine you're sitting where you are right now in your flat. Somebody walks into your flat right now and says, oh, Adam, we're actually 86. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. <laughs> you'd, you'd have a surprised reaction. It's exactly the same as when you're going in. Sure. You're yeah. letting this kid part know. So if it feels okay and if he's got used to the idea now, he's showing you that event, right, that was shaming. How do you feel towards him when he shows you that? Um, there was quite a swell of uh, compassion that felt like um, I, I felt like I wanted to say, okay, I, I, I get why you might be a bit protective of that. You know, what it didn't feel, I don't, as I sit here, I don't feel too activated by it. I feel like I'm, I'm sort of just noticing why it feels abandoned in a way. Yeah, good. So let him know that. I'm assuming it's a him. Gender identity, uh, a part will usually disclose, so I just want to be clear on that, but I'm assuming it's to him. Um, just let him know, let him know that you get, that he felt abandoned and that that was a horrible experience and he felt really badly inside. Yeah. And then, Adam, as you do that, see how he responds to you getting that. Uh, it's calming down. It's, uh -huh. it's notably sort of uh, the, the, te the intensity is tailing. Yeah, so often they present with the intensity to get our attention. Once once they've got our attention, they can pull it back a bit and good. Now, we're not doing an IFS therapy session. Sure. Right? So what I'm going to suggest you do is thank him. If it, if it fits for you, if, it, if it's within how you do your personal work, let him know you're going to return to him at some point. But don't do that unless you're going to do it. Otherwise, you'll break trust. Sure. Okay. Thank the protective part that was worried about the um, public embarrassment for s stepping to the side, softening back, right? And uh, thank that one for trusting you, for trusting me, and just invite it to notice nothing has happened that, that is publicly embarrassing. Yeah, I'm noticing another part that is saying, you know what, this is okay. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. Good. That, yeah. that feels like a more uh, mature part. Yeah. So... Um, Okay, is it okay to talk about what we just did in the context of the model? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love you to, yeah. Okay, so um, within this model, there is no resistance. Other models of psychotherapy talk about resistance, which is really when the client is has a part that doesn't want to do what the therapist suggests. In this understanding, uh, all of your parts are worthy of respect, and the protected parts always have a concern. So they're literally your protectors. We do not want to bypass them. We don't want to go trick them. We don't, nothing. They're not resisting anything. We want to get curious. So your protector here, what was it concerned about? Public embarrassment. Now, chances are it's concerned about that because it's happened at some point, point in the past. And chances are it happened to that little five to nine-year-old in the event that um, it, was, it was showing you. Right? So it makes absolute sense. If this has happened once and it was dreadful and your whole system was flooded with it, what we call blending, if you were blended with that part's abandonment and shame, protector doesn't want you to go through that again. And it particularly doesn't want you to go through it in a public forum. So of course it's going to come up and say we're not going to go there. So sure. any part that comes up that has a concern, 
we want to get to know what the concern is and then we address the concern it's rooted in respect of the self Absolutely. and it's and it's recognizing that you know these parts are trying to look after you that maybe they they aren't doing the best job but they were doing what they think was the best job or they think is the best job that's right and in the absence of knowing that there's a 35 year old who has a compassionate response who's available they're just going to keep doing what they're doing in parts world you've got a five to nine year old with a maybe 10 year old protector right saying you know don't risk public disclosure or don't risk you know whatever that shame would be and, and they've been you know operating in that way for a long time why wouldn't they uh, especially at that age if you do not have external resources in the form of trusted adults then your only resources are internal so we have minimizing protectors it's not that bad because you know, if it was that bad you know we'd go to shit we've got um people pleasing protectors you know if i'm just nice to everyone i meet then I'll never be criticized. If I'm not criticized, the shame won't have to get triggered. A whole bunch of protectors. Uh, and the, many of them are very young. So when you, as you did, you come into the system with the age you are, it's a surprise. If we were to continue that work, here's how it would, here's how it would look. I would invite you to listen to that part that's in that event, whatever the event is, where it felt both abandoned and ashamed. I would invite you to keep listening to it. Now, you might have parts that come in to give you a break from it, like uh, parts that will distract you or parts that might blank it out or something. Again, we ask if they have a concern. If they don't, come back to that young kid. When he's told you everything and he feels like you've heard him, like you get it, like you're able to hold that compassionate response, then he does not need to hold the shame and the abandonment connected to that event. It's effectively been uploaded to you. Then we would move through uh, a protocol in the IFS model where we'd invite that part of you, once it's been fully witnessed by you, not by the therapist, we would invite it to release all of the distress it's been holding, the distressing feelings, the distressing beliefs that came about as a result of that event. Then we would invite it to take in what it needs for itself to move forward, and it might take in something like um, confidence, or okay, you know, um, and then the protectors would be able to relax that are connected to it. There's more peace in your system, there's more harmony, and you might, you know, get trauma wrong again in the podcast, or you might say DBT instead of CBT, right? And then one of your guests might correct you, and then what you've noticed is it doesn't trigger that sense of shame because it's not there anymore to be triggered. And you'd have a different response. It might be like, oh, God, I can't believe I mixed that up might be a humorous response not the shame response right? because it's because the protectors have been appeased and the exile part is no longer there it's been sort of liberated in a way uh, Absolutely. and healed yeah it's no longer holding the distress it no longer has that role in the system because the distress has been witnessed by you yeah. so this form of therapy is intra-psychic you're working within the psyche as opposed to relational, which is working with the therapist. Now, it's relational to the extent that I, as therapist, sit holding my own curiosity, holding my own compassion with you, but the healing doesn't occur between you and I. It's not that you or your parts need to be witnessed by me. They need to be witnessed by you, by that same compassionate self that you have, that I have, that everybody on the planet has. 
that's where the healing occurs and it's permanent. The transformation in the system is permanent once that's occurred. So I'll give you an example of that. A few years ago, I was working with a surgeon here and he was responsible for his team in rounds at the hospital and presenting information. And he said, oh, I feel really badly. I never speak up for my team and I feel like I'm letting them down. I said, well, let's look at that. How come you don't speak up for your team? What do you notice when you go inside? There's a part of me saying, you know, don't speak up for them. Okay, let's get to know that one. How come? It's dangerous. Okay, how come it's dangerous for you to speak up? You know, track that part. How old is it? It's 13 years old. Okay, what part is it connected to? Well, now what it's showing me is uh, my dad was really violent and would get drunk a lot. And he used to tell me whenever I had an opinion that I had no right to hold that opinion. And who the fuck did I think I was to have that opinion in the first place? And he'd get really, really mad. And a part of me would get really scared. Like, okay, good to know. Is it okay to listen into that scared part? Yes. So he listened in fully to the terrified 13-year-old who was trying to, you know, developmentally step into his teenage years and was just put down and put down and put down. And so a protected part of him said, do not risk sharing your opinions. Do not risk. Uh, speaking out because it's dangerous. And they've been operating that dynamic for decades. Once he was able to listen to the terrified part and it was witnessed, it was able to release its fear. It took, in a, took on a different place in the system. His protector was able to relax. Now that was one session. Well, four or five months later, he was in session. He said, oh, by the way, I was thinking of you this morning. I'm like, why? He said, well, I was speaking up for my team in rounds and I remembered I didn't used to be able to do this. I couldn't quite remember why I couldn't do it, but I know it has something to do with some work we did. So once the distress is cleared out of the system, our responses become available in the outside world, which are different from what was available to us before because the protectors were concerned about the distress, which has now been cleared. Thank you for sharing that exa th those examples because I think it really helped frame it. And as you were talking, I was thinking about how empowering this model is because it's essentially saying you've got everything that you need within yourself to heal yourself. Yeah. Um, you just need to listen to the parts of you that are trying to protect you and use yourself to go and sort of almost rescue that part that might be vulnerable yeah. or scared or lonely or whatever it might be feeling. It's not overly complex, is it? Very, very simple. And it's also deeply nuanced, but the, 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 the principle is very, very simple. And the reality is, I don't know what's best for you. I don't live in your skin. How the hell could I know what's best for you? I don't. So it's arrogance or hubris on the part of a therapist to assume that they do. Right? So if I've got a client that comes to me and says, all this is going on in my life and I don't know what to do, can you help me? Or no, if they, or if they said, what should I do? I'd say, I, I've no idea what you should do. But why don't we look at the part of you that for some reason has lost its own sense of self-efficacy in the world or believes it needs to look to an authority figure and give away its power to do that? Like, when did that start happening? Do you know? Let's get to know that part of you. And then, lo and behold, you know, the domineering father or whatever, there's a story in that person's system about why I am not sufficient unto myself. And so we want to get to know the parts that are holding that story, what happened to them, liberate them, because I have the ability to direct my own life, as do you, as does everyone.
And why should my ability to direct my life be any different from your ability to direct yours? But if you've got a, a sense that you don't have the expertise to do that, let's look at that, because that's a part. That's a really common part, I would say, in my experience of, of, of being a therapist. People will often present with, I don't know, you're the therapist, right. you help me. And just yeah. the way that you framed that is really powerful. What I'm hearing you saying is, if somebody comes with that part that is prepared to give away their power to somebody else to heal themselves, yeah. if, if you intervene in that moment and collude with that part and say, oh, right, okay, well, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need, need to do this, effectively, if that part is a protective part, you're not doing any work to sort of stand it down or get closer to the part that it's protecting. Uh, well, and more than that, you're um, reinforcing the belief that you need an external authority in your sure. life to tell you what to do, right? And so any sense in that person's system of maybe I can do this myself gets further pushed to the background because they don't want to upset the therapist who likes being the expert. The What's key in this work is an IFS therapist needs to get permission to be a parts detector. And I get that permission explicitly from my clients because without it, um, I can get into a parts war, right? So if you if you were my client and you said to me, well, I don't know what to do. You're the therapist. Why won't you tell me? Because I've got permission to be a parts detector, I could say, Adam, that sounds like a, what is that, a frustrated part or an angry? What is that? I'm not quite clear. But there's some part of you which is coming at me now, which does it want something from me? Like, what is that? And you might say, well, let me check, Derek. Well, yeah, it actually wants, it wants the answer from you. I'm like, okay, well, how long has that been around, Adam? That part that really wants the answer and then you're back into tracking your own internal system do you ever come across a part where it it says this is nonsense and this whole like multiple selves and going within and or do you ever come across those parts with your clients i do i do i'm, I'm laughing because <laughs> my very first experience of this was about 15 years ago so i was at this retreat in mexico with dick schwartz the big guy who um, is a friend of mine, but uh, I didn't know him at the time, and he was the founder of this model. And he was doing a demonstration in front of the whole group, and I got picked for the subject. So <laughs> so he's, you know, Derek, does that part know you're there? Are you listening to it? You know, um, can you let it know that you, you feel open to it or whatever? And then what came up in my head was, I'm making all this up. Right? I'm making all this up to, to please him, um, but I haven't got the heart to tell him because he's so sincere. Right? <laughs> but finally, I had to because I felt I was being really like um, unkind. So I said, um, Dick, um, I think I'm making all this up. And he said, yeah, that's a part. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, it's a part. Just ask it if it'll pull back. I'm like, okay. And it did. Wow. It did. Yeah. yeah, so um, that's why I was laughing. Yeah, it's quite common. Someone will say, I think I'm making all this shit up. So that's fine. That's a, that's a part. Yeah. So, you're, so you're literally sort of in the, in the therapeutic setting just clocking like, oh, that's a part, that's a part, that's a part, and, and just noticing them, giving them respect, offering them time if they, if they need time, asking them to step back, but doing it really respectfully. I've sort of got like this image about being in a, in a room and maybe that's maybe that's why it's called internal family systems with my own sort of little internal family and going, could you just stand there for yeah. a minute because i'm trying to have a chat with adam over here <laughs> yeah. yeah 
So we've, I mean, we've usually got a target, what we call a target part. So in the little piece we did earlier, your target part would be that uh, five to nine year old in that event. We know he's holding shame and abandonment. That's a shitty place to be. So we want to help him to release that. Right? So um, that would be the target part. Sure. So if you then started talking about, oh, another thing, Derek, is, you know, um, I had a real big fight with my family this weekend. I'd say, Adam, I hear the part that wants to talk about that. We can only work with one part at a time, and we need to come back to this five to nine-year-old that's in this event. Right? So let those other ones know they're important, but we're staying focused with this one. And then as you come, as it lets you know more about its shame, I don't know how deep that runs for it or the abandonment, but it may have some very intense energy. It was surging earlier. Take a break and then ask the blanking part if it's okay to reconnect with the part holding the shames or, or not. Right? Does it have a concern? If it's got a concern, we address the concern. But we're always working with a target part once it's identified that's holding the distress so that it can be released from the system. This is this is fascinating. <laughs> part of doing this series is to is to help people identify how they can heal themselves. Um, and I think yes. IFS speaks to that. Are there any techniques for people that um, don't have access to a therapist, maybe your own resources or or places people can go to maybe start some of this work in a safe way. Yeah, absolutely. So I've made um, a series of videos called Working With Your Own System, precisely for people who don't have access to a therapist. Uh, and a lot of that's financial, a lot of the time. I've also made a series of videos on working with shame and clearing shame from the system, because that's a, that's a universal phenomena in cultures that um, use shaming and ours both North America and European, for sure, are cultures that do that. Um, and we've got a legacy of it. One of the things about shaming is it's a very effective form of behavior control for children because kids will do anything to avoid that feeling. Right? It's both the disconnect from love, and on top of that, it's shaming and it's telling someone that they are worthless, flawed, fundamentally not okay. And that becomes the biggest fear that we carry. What if I'm not okay? So either I'm not okay, which is shame, or, or the worry, what if I'm not okay? And a lot of our ways of being in the world are to do with managing that. And it goes back, you know, generations. I grew up with British parents, as you have, and um, it's just part of the culture. You, know, you shame your children. And unfortunately, it becomes this horrible burden that we then carry around. That's what uh, low self-esteem is. It's a part trying to get our attention that believes it's not good enough. And even if you're not doing therapy, disidentifying from that, recognizing that, oh, there's a part of me that believes it's not good enough, as opposed to I'm not good enough, is a, is a beautiful and accurate shifting of what's going on. Once you're clear that there's a part holding those beliefs and feelings, it becomes possible to work with it. But even if you're not working with it therapeutically, to be able to disidentify and say, oh, there's a part of me that holds that is a relief. What's at the core is you, your compassionate, creative, calm, courageous, connected self. That's at your core. It's, it can be occluded by the parts trying to get your attention, the part that every time you do something wrong and you make a mistake, says, oh, it's because we're not good enough. Well, notice that. That's a response from a part trying to get your attention. We're just not used to understanding it that way. I love the non-judgmental part of the self, the the, mm -hmm. the part that's able to, the part that's not a part that's able to just go, 
oh right okay there's a 10 year old that, that thinks he knows better that's great and there's this eight year old that's kind of a bit squeamy about pee stains uh, okay i don't need to give myself a hard time about that they're just parts and i really like the way you said can you guys just go off and play together because i'm trying to walk my dog and just bringing that 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 sense of i can see how this model can bring peace to the internal family um, and yeah. I know on your website you talk about that that's what people ultimately want is a sense of inner calm, inner peace. Oh, can, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've got some resources. You've got a YouTube channel where people can go and see videos about how to do some self-healing. Is that right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and I've also got my website, which has a video tab, which has the same videos on it. Just, they're just ordered a little better on the, on the website. Sure. Yeah. Sure. No, it's been. Is there anything that you would say to somebody who perhaps is experiencing that chatter, um, who's got those loud noises? I know that you're an IFS therapist, but more generally speaking, from your yourself, um, what would you say to somebody about? Because this the whole theme at the moment that uh, on the podcast is about healing and self healing. What would you yeah. have to say? If you've got a whole bunch of voices going on in your head all the time, um, first thing is to acknowledge them. Yeah, and just see what happens when you acknowledge them. Just say, just say hi. Now, sometimes when we go into the internal world, here's an analogy I like to, to use. It's like there's this world, I call it parts world. Right? All the parts are in parts world. They're all doing their thing. They're all trying to like sort stuff out you know, and deal with some of the distress that's in the system, either big T or little T trauma. Um, and then suddenly it's like you're in a perspex dome and we, we sort of come in as the grown-up self into the perspex dome and say, hi. What can sometimes happen is these parts are like, oh, thank God, there's somebody there and they kind of rush in and people can feel a sense of being overwhelmed by them all. So if that happens, then just let them know, hey, you're all important. I'm really glad to hear you all. You need to step back a bit. I can't be with you all at the same time, so step back a bit. Sometimes you can visualize a classroom or a stadium or a, an operating theater in a hospital where they're looking through the glass, but ask them to pull it back a bit so they're not overwhelming you. And if it feels like there's something really important and there's a whole bunch of parts rushing forward, see if you can ask for a spokesperson. Now, this, this will sound very odd if you're not used to working with your internal system, but once you get in there, it's very, very rich. As you said earlier, oh, I have a sense of a... A whole bunch of parts inside a room, right? That was your um, the way your parts are presenting to you. Different parts and different systems will present differently, um, but you can still, if if there's a genuine desire for connection, which will be coming from self, you can say, hey, pull it back a bit. I know you're all there. You're all important. Is there a spokesperson here that, that that can convey the information to me in a way that helps me hear? That's where the clarity of the communication comes in, right? The parts want to be heard, and if they're all rushing at once, you can't hear them. If you let them know you can't hear them and ask them to present in a way that you can hear them, they can do it because they want to be heard. Sure. And and earlier when you were asking me to sort of go to that part, I can still hear it saying, "I can't believe you've got a beard." That's what it was. <laughs> that's what it was saying, which was really funny. And it was a. I want to personally thank you for that moment because it was a bit of a. I I suddenly saw myself as a grown man in that yeah. moment and that part was like holy shit you've got a beard 
and you, yeah. you've got, you know, I'm looking up at the wall at my university certificate saying you, you went to university. What, what's we've got some catching up to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We call that updating. Yeah, and we'll often show a part like because sometimes they don't believe it, so we have to show them like today's headline in the newspaper or, you know, the fact that you have actually been to university. I was working with a, an emergency physician one time, and he got very anxious during surgery, which was very unusual for him. And so I said, well, let's track the anxiety, right? Which part of you is holding the anxiety? And it was a 14-year-old. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's just so interesting. This 14-year-old part of him was like, oh, my God, you're uh, cutting into somebody's body and you're putting your hands in them. You can't do that. We'll get caught, right? And it had no idea that he was in his 40s, early 40s, and was a qualified physician. So we had to show you, had to let the part look, here's me going through medical school, here's my certificates, and then the anxiety just relaxed, the anxious part of him relaxed. But it was this, literally, this this 14-year-old thought he was 14 and, and doing surgery on people. Brilliant. That's <laughs> a really nice example, isn't it, of, of how parts need to be updated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're clearly very passionate about what you do, and I can see how, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have your own personal experiences with this model, as most therapists come to a model through personal resonance. But it's yes. clear that you're... you're you bring a lightness to it as well, which I think is really nice, a sense of fun. And and do, does that translate into the therapy space? Does it is it is it fun at times? You know, sometimes we get this perception that all therapy is like somber faces and tears. It's it's well, it's fun a lot of the time. And, and sometimes I need to um, keep my delight part in check because um, because it's not appropriate in that moment for what the client's presenting. Um, but half the time I can say to my clients, yeah, your parents are driving you fucking crazy right now, right? Let's see if we can find out what that's about, because they are, right? Or, you know, a client might say, um, uh, yesterday I was doing a podcast and uh, I got the definition of trauma wrong and I felt this feeling of shame in my chest. And I'll say, great, let's see if we can get him out of there, right? Really glad we've identified that one because I know that shame is not the core of my client. The client knows that I know that, right? And if you're able to find a part that's holding distress, we now have a method to clear that distress from the system. So when parts present with um, deep sorrow, loneliness, um, terror, um, shame, worthlessness, uh, there's a, I get delighted because it means that they're up and, we, and I know we can clear it. This is the thing about this model. It clears the distress. It's not about living with it. It's not not about reframing it. It's not about pushing it away. It's about transforming it. Because that kind of distress is not innate. We are not born with shame. We are not born with terror. We might be born into terror, depending on the birthing process, but we're not born with terror. We're not born with deep, deep loneliness. So because we're not born with that, during the course of our life, if it occurs, then a part of us will take that on. But because it's been taken on, and it's not innate, that burden, that burden can then be released. And this form of therapy has the modality and the method of releasing the distress which is not innate, so that people can step into what's true for themselves. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing. Thank you for bringing your personal examples. Thank you for what you 
did with me that little bit of work there i feel like that started something for me genuinely so thank you for that um yeah. thanks thanks for your time it's been um it's been really interesting and i hope people will find some some value in that and the exercises that you've got on your youtube channel i'll make sure i post links to those in the in the podcast bio um and any yeah. of the links that you think are useful uh, i'll yeah. put those in there too thanks so, and yeah. did you get if you get any feedback on this, just I'd love to know what any what sorry, I'd love to know whatever feedback you get back on this. Sure. Well, I've got a really curious part now that's sort of wanting to delve deeper, and I've got another part that's really excited and wants to stay up all night editing the podcast and getting it live, and then I've got another part saying, Adam, you make sure you get some sleep because you got to look after yourself. So. Uh, yeah, it's interesting when you just start thinking about your your mind in parts. It sort of makes so much sense. <laughs> well, it does. And then what you've got there is you've got that part that really wants you to be rested because it wants you to be in balance, right? And it knows about the excited one, but it knows that the excited one takes over too much. You're going to stay up all night and there will be negative consequences. Like, it's just so amazing how they're all, like, rooting for you, you know? Yeah. Even if they're Even if they're in diametrically opposite positions, I want to stay up all night, we have to get some rest. They both have your best interest at heart, even if they don't like each other. That is the way it is. It's not just a way of seeing it. And I, I think that's what you're saying is it's not reframing. It's not putting a new perspective. It's just that is the way it is. The one part wants to stay up and do this podcast all night because it wants to feel joy. And then the other side's like, no, we need rest if we're going to look after ourselves. So, yeah, every, everything's rooting for me. I like that. This is for me how it is. I think Vic Schwartz has nailed how the personality system works. I have a skeptical part that's been looking for the flaws in this therapy for like 15 years and cannot find it. And there's some amazing research coming now out of, um, in North America, there's a phase three trial of MDMA with trauma. So what they found in the MAPS study is, um, it's mainly with, well, childhood abuse, um, PTSD, and also veterans. What they're finding is people under the influence of MDMA, so it's a six-hour journey, they've got blindfolds on and music, and there's a therapist either side of the bed or the couch, and then they'll sit up and they'll spontaneously say, so here's an example. This young guy, I think of veterans because I'm English, it was like World War One, but this, this guy's like 24, right? And he sits up and he says, oh, my God, um, I've realized that that, raging angry part of me i'd locked him up in a cell and demonized him and when i realized that i went to him and we took the cell apart together we took the bars off the cell and i just hugged him so these are spontaneous uh, presentations of self with parts from people that have no knowledge of the model they're not psychotherapists they haven't been told that this is the model they're just under the influence of mdma which from this understanding facilitates more self-energy being available more of that loving, compassionate, warm-hearted self-energy being available. And when that is available in the system, it will naturally move to the parts holding trauma and help them to release the trauma. And what they're finding is after two sessions, a huge percentage, something like 76%, are no longer meeting the criteria for PTSD. And they've had it for decades. And it's been therapy-resistant PTSD. That's how they need to get into the study. Two sessions with NVMA, they're no longer meeting that criteria and they're spontaneously reporting the kind of healing that this model is based on. Very exciting. It is. It is very exciting. And, and that that leads me to a final question, which is, do you think trauma has changed over the years or do you think just the way that we're healing trauma is changing? Do you think do you think trauma is timeless? I think there are 
a lot more opportunities perhaps these days for trauma with things like in the United States, these grotesque shootings that keep occurring. Um, what this model is able to do with that kind of trauma is to work with the protective system to allow the traumatic event to be titrated so it can be witnessed by self so that the trauma is no longer uh, um, unintegrated in the system. I don't know if that fully answered your question, but that's one of the gifts of this model with people that have experienced trauma. I really appreciate your time, Derek. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll let people know where they can uh, follow you and find you. I hope you enjoyed listening to that podcast and also enjoyed Derek's sense of humour. We kind of wrapped up quite quickly at the end. So I, I offered my apologies to Derek after that for kind of cutting him a bit short. I was just very conscious of time because your time is as precious as anybody else's. So, yeah, I hope you took me away. It's a fascinating model of therapy, isn't it? And I guess Derek's a big promoter of it because he's seen so many results. It's also important to remember that what works works. And so different types of therapies work for different people. We know that. And I think that's an important point to remember. So, yes, thank you for listening. If you haven't listened to the previous podcast, there's some cracking ones out there on relationships, on childhood developmental trauma, and coming soon, we're going to be talking to an outdoor therapist, and we've got a few other interesting life stories that we want to share as well. But don't forget, you can also go online to mebeingadam.com, check out my blog where there's guest blogs for people sharing their own healing stories too. Otherwise, you can follow me on social media, at mebeingadam. I love to hear from you. I want your comments. I want your feedback. Let me know what you'd like to hear more of, less of. If you'd like to be a guest yourself and you feel like you're comfortable and confident sharing your healing story, then hit me up. I'm always listening. Otherwise, take care, stay safe, and we'll speak again soon. Mwah.